0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim.
0: The myth of Main Street. Why going back to the past will cost us. Lewis Hyman.
2: Main Street is a touchstone for how we like to imagine the real America. There's always this anxiety about what America is. Main Street is how we imagine ourselves ideally I think on the left there's a desire to boost wages and on the right it's to lower prices and I think that the right answer has to be well how do we get people into jobs that pay them better than they're currently being paid today and still take advantage of efficiency. So one of the tensions we have is that we are struggling as society to create these opportunities for autonomy, you know, whether on the farm or in the small business. But the reality sometimes falls quite short of that. Our
1: show is about fixes. Yeah. How to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How
0: do we fix it?
1: So Jim, Make America
0: Great Again was Donald Trump's signature slogan. People love that kind of nostalgia, but today we're going to take a look at the case against nostalgia, why going back to an imagined past could prove very expensive.
1: We were struck by an article recently called The Myth of Main Street, written by the economic historian Lewis Hyman.
0: Lewis is a professor at Cornell University and the director of the Institute for Workplace Studies, And he joins us via Skype from Ithaca, New York.
1: Lewis, welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. In your piece for The New York Times, which I want to quote at some length, you say Main Street is a place, but it's also an idea. It's small-town retail. It's locally-owned shops selling products to hardworking townspeople. It's neighbors with dependable blue-collar jobs and auto plants and coal mines. It's a feeling of community and having control over your life. It's everything that seems threatened by global capitalism and cosmopolitan elites and big cities and fancy suburbs. So
2: first, what is that idea? Well, Main Street is a touchstone for how we like to imagine the real America. There's always this anxiety about what America is. Main Street is how we imagine ourselves. This idea of small towns where people have control over the course of their lives through their own small businesses, is how we would like the economy to be. This is sort of the dominant American myth that we can start our own small— And and that myth sounds pretty appealing. Definitely. It sounds great to me, the idea that we could all just go out and start our own small businesses and have autonomy and control of our lives. This sounds wonderful.
0: So what's wrong with the myth?
2: Well, the problem with the myth is that it's a myth, um, that since the beginning of our country, we've tried to make this myth a reality. But almost from the very beginning, this dream contained a dark underbelly, which is that as a market economy, money flows where it's most profitable, and as you start to have the Industrial Revolution, it creates economies of scale, so that if you have big producers, big businesses, businesses, they can really just drive the little guy under and this is just how capitalism works and so one of the tensions we have is that we're struggling as a society to create these opportunities for autonomy you know whether on the farm or in the small business but the reality sometimes falls quite short of that
0: now in your piece you you make the point that a lot of these small locally owned businesses are actually not very efficient and mean high prices for consumers, some of whom aren't high income.
2: Sure. I mean, I think that this is an important point, that when you have an independent store, it just costs more to run. So this is why in the 1920s and 30s, when we first start to see the rise of the chain stores, first the A&P, but also other kinds of five and dimes, the Woolworths, the Kresge's, they seem to threaten all these small businesses in towns. And so there was a anti-chain store movement to try and stop these from driving out local business. And we still see the echoes of these debates as we talk about Walmart. Yeah, let's, let's look at that
1: anti-chain store movement. What was the result of that?
2: There were attempts at the state levels as well as the national level to pass special taxes on chain stores so that the more stores you had, the more you would have to pay in taxes per store. And the logic there was, well, you got all these efficiency gains from having multiple stores, so you should be taxed to level the playing fields. And one of the big things that came out of the 1930s was fair trade laws, which were state-level laws that set floors on how low prices could go for manufactured goods.
0: I used to work at a backpacking outdoor store that sold all the high-end Sierra Designs and North Face gear, and if North Face said a parka was going to cost $50, it cost $50. Nobody else could undercut us. So as somebody working in a small store in a specialized field, it was it was great while it lasted, not so great for the consumer.
2: So this this idea of we're never going to undercut, you know, is one way of doing things, but it's tough. Think about the bargaining power between a giant chain store like Walmart, that can go into a manufacturer and say, look, I'll sell your things, but I want a price cut, or find somewhere else to sell it. So this is basically the bargaining power that large chain stores have. And so they can drive down the price that manufacturers can get, and in turn, pass those savings on to consumers, but with all kinds of unexpected consequences for what we'd like the economy to look like.
1: Well, let's make the alternative argument. What's the problem with Main Street as opposed to having large, big-box stores outside of town?
2: I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with it. Um, I think that it's a lovely idea. And certainly in more affluent communities where people have extra bucks in their pocket, they spend extra. And part of it is you're getting this different experience. You like the idea. You're supporting local businesses, and it costs more. Where it gets tricky is the idea that somehow small local manufacturers can compete with these giant manufacturers. Now, that's changing a bit as we have new kinds of technologies, but for the longest period of time, that wasn't the case. That economies of scale just overwhelmed everything else. And what we're trying to do then is think about how do we keep the vitality of Main Street but recognize that there are these realities in the economy.
0: And you say that the nostalgia for Main Street isn't just misguided, but it can actually be harmful. It can lead to some bad policies.
2: Well, I think that there is this idea that it's a natural state of affairs, whereas in reality, it was a profoundly unnatural state of affairs if you consider market capitalism to be the natural order of things. You know, one of the things that we need to think about is what are we really interested in? Are we interested in, autonomy? Are we interested in being able to walk down a nice, pleasant street? Are we interested in jobs just the way they were before? And some of those things are possible and some of those things aren't.
1: And and another reason why those things aren't possible is because of the rise of automation and globalism that have totally changed the economy. And it's not as if we can put the genie back in the bottle.
2: For sure. I mean, the U.S. still makes more nearly than any other economy in the world in terms of manufacturing, except for China. It's just that our, our factories are heavily automated. So it's not just the story of globalization. It's also the story of automation and the kind of system of you know expensive manufacturing, expensive retail, high paying jobs all fell apart in the 1970s as we went to automation and globalization for our manufacturing, to the discount store for our shopping, and as unions began to fall apart as well. But it also opens up new possibilities for the economies at the same time.
1: Yeah, before we go on to solutions, I just want to ask you again, why can't we go back? Why can't we have a model where we encourage more smaller businesses at perhaps at the expense of large conglomerates? And, and impersonal ways of, of carrying out everyday shopping?
2: We could definitely do that. It would just cost more. People would have to be willing to pay more. Um, we would have to reinstitute policies, price floors for our manufacturing or price stability for our retailers so that they made more money. So one of the things you have to realize is that we went from a world of department stores, which which were the main retailers in 1960, they paid out about a third of their sales in wages. Well, five years later, 1965, the biggest retailers in America as a sector are these discount stores like Walmart and Target, and they pay about 8% of their sales in wages. We can't have low-cost retail and You know, locally owned shops and everything. We need to increase those margins. So I just personally don't think...
0: So Lewis, what you just heard there is a little bit of the dynamic of this show. The view that Richard just put out is what I would characterize as standard left-leaning nostalgia that why can't we just protect the workers and the jobs? I argue, as a squishy libertarian on the team, I would argue that the left often underestimates the importance of low prices, especially to poor people. And I'm often struck that the left seems to shrug that concern off. What's your take?
2: I think that's a perfectly reasonable critique. I mean, ideally, I think on the left, there's a desire to boost wages. And on the right, it's to lower prices. And I think that the, the right answer has to be, well, how do we get people into jobs that pay them better than they're currently being paid today and still take advantage of efficiency? In the long run, Our economy is only possible because of the rising productivity, right? And this is the source of all our wealth because capitalism is an engine for growth. It's also an engine for inequality. And figuring out how to balance that growth and inequality has been the source of our political struggles for the last 200 years.
1: It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm
2: Jim Meggs. And our
1: guest is economic historian Lewis Hyman. Back. in a minute lewis hyman is our guest and he is the author of a fascinating article in the new york times you can check it out or go to the link on our website and it's called the myth of main street and lewis let's switch now from what's wrong to what we can do about what we have in our economy today so Thanks to the Internet, you say, that small-town America
2: can pull money back from Wall Street. Well, there's this new thing called the Internet. And on this Internet, anybody can reach anyone. And that means not just that you can you know, look up a website in China, but you can actually sell products to China and Europe and everywhere else in America. And there's different ways to work on the Internet that I think most people are not aware of. There's ways to do, of course, high-end programming jobs, and this is certainly what everyone in Silicon Valley wants to tell you is the future. But there's also ways to do more mundane tasks, and sometimes to be paid reasonable amounts for it. So through Upwork.com, as I write in the article, you can work online as, as a receptionist in your hometown. You can sell products on Etsy. You can make it easier to find local handyman tasks through Thumbtack. You can even sell your products globally through eBay. But now, because of the internet, everybody has access to sell their labor or sell their products online in a new way. And I think this could be part of a solution for revitalizing small town and rural America.
1: Let's unpack that a little bit and
2: and look at Upwork. Upwork's a really interesting site. Yeah, it's a very interesting site. It's about 15 years old. And it is a platform for, that you go on and you can sell services. So services like programming, services like editing, services like receptionist work.
0: And you mentioned in your article somebody who works as a receptionist I think for, you know, maybe some company out in San Francisco or Silicon Valley, but she's able to work from her home and how does that work?
2: Yeah, it was actually kind of striking. I walked into an office in Silicon Valley and it was one of these big glass cubes and I hear over here and I look over and there's just a desk and on top of the desk is a screen and there's a woman on the screen and she says hello welcome and I said oh hi I'm here to visit so and so and she says well here's your badge you know the thing where you have to get your picture taken and they put it on a badge and she takes my picture through a camera she prints out the badge and she says would you like a water and I was like no thank you and I was just wondering how a disembodied head would offer me a (laughs) glass of water but there's a refrigerator next to the desk and she's like, hold on, I'll call so-and-so. And she made a call. And a few minutes later, I had a meeting. I said, what was that? And she's like, oh, that's Crystal. She lives two hours north of Flint, Michigan, and she's a receptionist for our office.
1: And how has that experience worked for
2: this company?
0: She's worked there for seven years. And the median home price in Palo Alto is probably well over a million dollars. So somebody who's working at a fairly low-paid job like a receptionist would never be able to live anywhere near the area. So it's kind of a win-win on both sides.
2: Yeah, working class people commute up to two hours to work in the restaurants and, and shops and everything else in Palo Alto, which does have a very vibrant Main Street, but it's dependent on the labor of people who have to travel for hours to work there. And the places with the most vital economies are the places that have these real estate bubbles. And figuring out how to decouple place from work being able to live locally two hours north of Flint, Michigan, and work globally or even you know, nationally. And this is the kind of world that is emerging and a world that can really help rural people who often have difficulty searching out reasonable-priced jobs where they live.
1: But this does presume those working-class areas have Internet coverage.
2: That's right, and that's why it's important that people like Governor Cuomo in New York are pushing for the expansion of broadband connections across rural New York. And this is something that, you know, we we also built roads, we built canals. We did all kinds of things to make the market work and help people. And this is, this is another thing that we can do. But I think you'd be surprised how many people, even in rural areas, have smartphones. And a lot of this kind of work, I mean, obviously not live receptionist work can be done on a smartphone, but a lot of other kinds of work can be done in this way.
0: So when we talk about things like people function as digital assistants, they could do that in India or Sri Lanka or anywhere. So those jobs are somewhat vulnerable. What gives people in the US an advantage in this situation?
2: Sure. I mean, this is the first thing everyone says, and it's a perfectly reasonable question. Um, I think people who think, that you can have a virtual assistant overseas and it would be the same as having a receptionist from Michigan don't really understand how culture works, that there are these gigantic cultural gaps. There's these gigantic linguistic gaps, even between people who speak the same language around the world. And there is an advantage to being in the same time zone with somebody if you're working on a project together, if you're needing their support, if you need them to interact with your customers. And this is why so many of the call centers that were you know, sent overseas are now being reshored back to America.
0: One thing that you say that in a field, say coal mining, where so many coal mining jobs have been eliminated, there is this tendency for us to want to come in and say, well, we need to teach those people new skills to learn to be computer programmers or something like that. And you stress that, Maybe the place to start is with skills people already have.
2: Yes, there are lots of well-meaning people who are trying to reach out to disadvantaged communities and train them to look like Silicon Valley, to teach them how to be programmers. And I think this is kind of a fool's errand. And it betrays the naivete about what actually America looks like by a lot of well-meaning, college-educated people. You know, only about a third of Americans have college degrees, right? So we aren't even poised to all become techno-literate in this way, to be able to become programmers of the future. It's just not possible. So what we need to do is find people where they are and recognize the skills that they have that maybe aren't valorized in California but are important in how the economy actually works. You know, communication skills, cultural skills, Basic reading and writing. And one of the magical things about this post war economy was that we created jobs for regular folks. And that's what we need to do again.
1: Are there examples of that being done that can be replicated elsewhere?
2: Yeah, so these, these different kinds of labor platforms are exactly those. I heard a story the other day of a woman in Cooperstown who went on Etsy and sold an apron. She took the money from that, she made it some more aprons, sold those, then she started hiring friends. And she just sells these aprons through Etsy. And that's something that wouldn't have been possible before the internet because she would have had to find a retailer and place the apron with a big department store or a discounter. And now it's possible. You know, she's making a living doing it. So this is, this is a market solution for small business. But what we need to do is support these people. It's not just going to naturally happen. They don't know the skills that they have because they've been told by the media and by the educational system that they don't have skills, that they're not smart, that they don't have value in this new economy. And we need to teach them that they do have skills, they do have value, and they can be successful in this new economy without having to become programmers. Well, who can teach them? Well, this is, this is one of the reasons I wrote the op-ed, was that I just wanted to get the word out there. Um, I'm also involved in trying to get something called the Digital Countryside Initiative off the ground in New York State. We act as a partnership between these different platforms, the Etsy's, the Thumbtacks, the Ebay's, the Upwork's, and where people actually go in their communities when they need to find work, which are community organizations like the 4-H or public, especially public libraries. People go to public libraries now to search for work, especially since 2008. So many of our libraries have turned into centers for social services. So the plan is to create a website that shows people the kinds of jobs with stories of regular, ordinary skill sets, and then have an intake analysis. So you go online, the website asks you a bunch of questions about you. Do you know how to sew? Do you know how to make fine woodwork? Do you know how to make not fine woodwork? Can you write? Can you speak English? You know, whatever the things that you have, and then tells you the kinds of jobs you might be fit for in this new economy. And you know, it. To people who are in the know, people in the valley, people who are interested in policy world, they're like, why do we need that? Everybody's heard of these things. And the truth is, most people haven't. So I think just simply creating broadband won't be enough. We also have to create systems to support people as they make this transition to the new economy. I think that would be a much better use of our money than trying to train people into being something that they're not and something that they often don't want to do.
0: We love it when the show comes up with strong, actionable solutions. Lewis, thank you so much. You gave us a lot to think about and a lot to follow up on.
2: Thanks so much for having me on the show, guys. Appreciate it.
0: Well, Richard, you know I love that kind of discussion that's about economics. It's about a contrarian way of thinking, challenging a lot of conventional wisdom that's so comfortable for people. And it also comes down to some very tangible solutions that might seem small, but maybe that's the way to look at these sorts of problems. Instead of trying to change everything, tackle some little things and see if that makes a difference.
1: And I think what's also good is this pragmatic idea that we have the economy that we have not the one that we thought we had 50 years ago or 100 years ago so let's deal in a practical way as opposed to reimagining everything
0: well you know well you know we talked a little bit about this idea we're going to retrain everybody for the kinds of jobs that people who work at colleges and in government and big businesses think are the most important but you know what if you look at the history of those retraining programs none of them have worked very well everybody always talks about that as a solution but the numbers don't don't really add up I love his idea of saying, let's focus on skills people do have and connect them with markets.
1: Yeah, I got to disagree with you on this. I think that the idea that there are no such thing as useful uh, retraining programs is, is not true. Well, I'll I think get, you've overstated I'll that. Get, and the idea that you can't bring in, say, community colleges to work with employers and work with different groups in a local coalition designed at helping people. I, th- I think we can do that.
0: Well, we've it, done a lot of it and the numbers haven't been too good. The community college idea, on the other hand, it links up to something he's suggesting. That is, we need to change the cultural model of what's a worthwhile job. We have this elitist idea of what jobs are meaningful. And, of course, they're the kinds of jobs that people who enjoyed college are good at. (laughs) So let's start with the skills. People do have the things that that they already know that they're pretty good at and see if there's opportunities there. I agree, but...
1: The idea that we completely get rid of Main Street and that all small businesses are more expensive and therefore uh, should be run out of town by some more efficient economic model. I think that there is something to be said for local businesses and helping those local businesses do well because they have links to the community. I think there are many small businesses in a lot of towns and even in cities that help knit those communities together.
0: Well, I agree. The reason this is such a powerful nostalgic idea is because it is genuinely appealing. And we all like going into the local store. I mean, I still patronize my local hardware store unless I have to buy something pretty expensive. Then I go to Home Depot. (laughs) No, we all like this idea. The question is, are we misshaping public policy with this idea that that alone is going to bring back the economy? For example, we could have ridiculously high tariffs on all products coming into the country. That would help domestic manufacturing some, uh, but it would also raise everybody's prices dramatically. Is that really a distortion that we want to impose, especially on working class and poor people?
1: But I do like the idea of a consumer education initiative of some sort that helps people to realize that there's real expertise, for instance, in a local hardware store that you don't get at the Walmart. Well, people make th- those decisions a of, every day. Richard, yeah, Richard, people make I, th- those I decisions think a lot of people picking up discounts and bargains on stuff that doesn't work as well as something where if they'd only asked the guy in the local hardware store what's the best model for this they'd end up doing much better i just want to say that it's not a policy prescription okay
0: there's this wonderful thing it's called the free market people can have that experience and decide from now on i'm going back to my local hardware store they're welcome to do that i do that sometimes i don't want to impose that on anybody fair enough
1: It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And we love to
0: argue. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And he's Jim (laughs) Meggs, And I'm right and he's wrong. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And the music is by Lou Stravinsky. And uh, we are produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one-dollar-per-month trial period at Shopify.com/work. Shopify.com/work. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.